0: As you find our passage of Scripture this morning in your bulletin insert, uh, you need to know that we're beginning a four part series on worship today. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the major parts of worship in this series, the first of which is the preparation. And uh, today we go to Psalm 95, uh, the first seven and a half verses. Let us read the word of God together. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. study of history over the years. I don't know if you've ever learned anything about uh, President Theodore Roosevelt and who he was as a person, but he was known to attend worship regularly and to sing the hymns louder than anyone else. And so because of that trait, this story was sort of concocted during his administrations that made the rounds among the people who worked under him. And the story was set on the first day of him going to heaven. And President Roosevelt walks up to St. Peter and says, Sir, your choir is inexcusably weak. You need to reorganize it at once. And St. Peter used the leadership principle I've seen at work around here when he said, well, okay, you reorganize it. And the president said, well, first of all, I need 10,000 sopranos, I need 10,000 altos, and I need 10,000 tenors. And Peter said, well, what about the basses? And the president said, oh, I'll sing bass. That story made me smile because when I was a teenager and singing in the choir at my home church, New Sterling ARP, up outside of Statesville, North Carolina, our pastor at the time also sang in the choir and he had this tremendously strong bass voice and he could cover the whole bass section on any anthem or hymn we ever sang. In fact, If the men were singing something in unison that day in the anthem, he could cover the whole men's section. And that story also makes me smile because I can still see my children grinning in the pew when they were younger. When we would be on vacation and worshiping in Sarah's home church, Old Providence ARP in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And they would hear their granddaddy's voice all the way from the back row of the choir loft ringing out over the whole church hitting some of those high tenor notes that we invariably find in some of the old Bible song selections. And they would just grin from ear to ear. Now I don't tell you about my father-in-law and my former pastor uh, to make fun of them. I tell you about them because... They were always ready to worship. They were always ready to sing praises, to make a joyful noise to the rock of their salvation as they continue to be even today. They were and they are active worshipers. And that's what the psalmist calls us to be as well. Look how he begins. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Notice that first verb. Come. We are on the move in worship. That is what is supposed to be taking place in worship. We are on the move from our own self-centered world to a place or attitude or posture where we are able to give glory to God, where we are actively involved. And notice how we accomplish this. The psalmist tells us we sing. We make a joyful noise. We give him thanks and we sing songs of praise. Now, a lot of the we-us language in this psalm shows us that corporate worship is in view here in this particular psalm. We're doing this together as God's people. And though I don't know that there are imperatives in this particular psalm, some of the psalms have imperatives. They're actually commanding us to sing. And let me tell you why. Not all of us have a great voice for singing, but we can all make a joyful noise. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. And one of the reasons we need to sing is because when we sing, we are actually focusing on God. And those words we're using in the hymn or psalm of praise actually take us away from ourselves and and help us to focus on God. And that's what we're supposed to be doing in worship. That's why the songs we always sing in the early part of the worship services are hymns or psalms of praise, hopefully focusing on some attribute or characteristic or even the general nature of God where His glory and His power and majesty are clearly spelled out. Think of our first hymn today. Oh, Worship the King, All Glorious Above, it's really a psalm. It's a hymn based on Psalm 104. Just think about the many ways it calls us to notice who God is and what He's capable of doing and what He has already accomplished. In the hymn, we see Him characterized as king, shield, defender, ancient of days, maker, redeemer, and friend. We also have many references to his attributes, his power, his might, his grace, his bountiful care, his love. All of these combine, as one person put it, to describe with literary eloquence and spiritual warmth the the majesty and praiseworthiness of our God. see, the reason it's so important that we focus on God is because not hardly any of us come into this place, this sanctuary, ready to worship. Too many things have happened this past week to cause us to be focused on ourselves or on other people or events or places. Something may have even happened to us on the way to worship this morning. We may have bumped into someone in the hall who brought up some subject that took us far, far away from the attitude of worship. Or it may have been a terrible week at work or or a child is sick. There are all kinds of thoughts and feelings competing within our hearts and minds that keep us from completely turning and thanking Him for what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. This is what the scriptural call to worship and the opening hymn or psalm as well as the prayer of adoration all seek to do to prepare us for this most important joy that we get to do, that we have the privilege of doing each and every week, which is to worship our God to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. They help us to focus on Him. They help us to remember His glorious works on our behalf. They help help us to proclaim to the world and those around us the greatness of this God and the love He's given and poured out upon us through the gift of His own Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our text, you can see how our writer speaks to God's greatness. He says, let us come into His presence and make a joyful noise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are His. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. As John Calvin puts it, our writer speaks to God's greatness by drawing a contrast between him as the powerful God that he is and such false gods as people have invented for themselves. Calvin says in proof of his greatness, the writer asks us to look to the formation of the world, which he declares to be the work of God's hands and therefore under his control. As we've talked about before, whenever God's people begin to get a glimpse of who He really is, His holiness, His righteousness, His his power, His knowledge, we usually have responses. And one of those responses is to confess that we're sinful people. But another of those responses is usually worship. We see a good example of that in Leviticus 9. When Aaron offers a sin offering for the whole nation of Israel, and following the completion of this offering, we can read there that fire came forth from before the Lord and consumed the offering. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. There was nothing else they could do. But bow down. This is our response as well as we get a view of God through the early part of the worship service that we call the preparation. We bow down, which is to say we admit who he is, and at the same time we're admitting who we are. Through this heart attitude of yielding in worship. And we bow down and kneel precisely because he is we are people who belong to Him. We can see how our psalmist describes this response in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. He says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Now, we know that Scripture teaches, in fact, Jesus Himself even teaches that God has what we might call a common providential care over all of the world. Uh, we can see that in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when Jesus says that God makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, that He sends His reign on the just as well as on the unjust. But in this text, we see more than that common providential care. We can see that God is a shepherd to his people. With all of the thoughts that that brings to mind, a shepherd to his people. He's caring for his covenantal people in a special way, a personal way, a loving and comforting way. We can see that He is our God, which is just a little bit of a variation on the typical covenantal line that we see in Scripture over and over again, where God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, you've heard that before. But what does that mean practically? Well, among other things, we can see that this revelation of who God is relationally meets us right at the point of our need. You know, we live in a world that's many times dark and evil, a world full of fantastic storms that can veer this way or veer that way and affect us for weeks or months. And being aware of that, we need to see God as our sovereign Lord, working His good even through our difficulties, as Paul teaches In Romans 8. And not only do we need to see him as our sovereign Lord, but we need to see him as he's pictured here in our text. As our shepherd, as David does so artfully in Psalm 23. We're troubled by our sins and failures, but we're the people of his pasture. He provides all that we need as he offers unto us the gift of forgiveness that's ours to claim through Jesus Christ and His work on the cross for our sins. Or in times of stress and unrest, He leads us beside the still waters and and does what? He restores our souls. Even when we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because of God's presence in our midst. This comforter, who's always with us, the power of His Holy Spirit and one to whom we can always turn because God is the God of all comfort. And this picture here of how we are the sheep of His hand points us, I believe, not just to the fact that God is our shepherd as important as that is and as much good news as that carries, but also points forward to a view of Jesus as the good shepherd. You know, that's what Jesus told the people, that John 10 records for us that you read for your first reading. One of the great I am statements of that gospel, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And within the context of that chapter and the picture that Jesus is painting, he's contrasting himself as the good shepherd with this poor shepherd, this one who is a hireling, this one who, when danger comes, the first thing he thinks of is running away. He fears lest he lose his own life, whereas Jesus is the one who fights for us, who puts himself between us and whatever danger it is. And he's willing to yield up his own life to keep us safe. And that's what he did, ultimately, on the cross. We can see in his death the depth of his love for God's people, for us all, and for the the great commitment that he had to obey God's will. This is why worship is, yes, bringing adoration to God, but worship is, in addition to that, a response to God's love in Jesus Christ. It's a response to our Savior, to our Redeemer. As Brian Chapel puts it in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, the heart of Christian worship is love for Christ. We cannot love Him without extolling His greatness, without confessing our weakness without seeking His goodness, thanking Him for His grace and living for His glory. He says, so out of love for Him, we worship Him in these ways. And I want you to understand what this really means. This means that our worship follows and has a gospel pattern. Not because we're forced into these rituals or forced into this particular order of service that you see before you own your bulletin because that's what our directory of public worship happens to say, one of the standards of our denomination, or because it's a special rule from the session. Rather, we have this order of worship because our hearts are compelled to love Jesus. And we love His Word and the teaching of His Word how does His Word teach us to worship? You see, our worship services, the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock, are designed to do just this. Give Him praise. Confess our weakness. Seek His goodness. Thank Him for His grace. And live for His glory. Both of our services, in effect, represent, the gospel as we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And both of our services conform to teaching in the directory of public worship because our services conform to the teaching of Scripture. When our unity committee was meeting all of those months, I think we met for ten months and met usually two times a month, so some 18, or 20 meetings, we came up with a vision for worship and music for the life of this church, which the session ultimately approved. And that vision says that we will have Christ-centered worship. Not music or style or preference-centered worship, but Christ-centered worship with participation from the entire church body infused with theological instruction throughout that proclaims the gospel and pursues fellowship within the service. This is what we seek to do in this place. Offer Christ-centered worship empowered by the Holy Spirit that helps us to bring glory to God, that helps us to respond to what He's done for us in His gift of Jesus Christ, that helps us to therefore see who we are, sinners in His sight, who need His forgiveness and His saving grace, who give Him thanks for all that He's done for us in Jesus and where we are helped and inspired and. pursuing days before we come back together as a congregation of His people. This is what He desires. This is what is for our best good. This is our posture as we come together on Sunday mornings for His honor and glory. I want you to hear once more the urgency, but not just the urgency, the joy of the psalmist's word. For he says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. This is the joyful privilege we have as the people of God to come into his house and to worship together and to proclaim him as the great and glorious King that He is. And may He bless us to that end in the days to come. Amen. Amen. As we prepare for our prayer of thanksgiving and petition, you need to know that the General Synod would like for us as... Associate Reform Presbyterians to pray tomorrow specifically against oppression in the world. Uh, We have one of our former missionaries who is right now unjustly held in prison in Turkey, Andrew Brunson, a gentleman that we've prayed for several times in worship, but there are people like that in many parts of the world today, unjustly imprisoned for their faith. And there's all sorts of persecution that continues to rage against the church of Jesus Christ and his people. So I hope that you will remember that tomorrow uh, to pray against all forms of oppression in the world. Let us pray together.